Brookie and Berger podcast. I'm Brookie, otherwise known as Peter Bruckner. I'm here in Melbourne. And Berjo, otherwise known as Darren Burgess, uh, should be in Adelaide. You there, Berjo? I am Brookie. Good to uh, chat to you as always. Yeah, good. Um, and uh, we have a homegrown guest this week. Um, would you like to introduce him? Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce a good mate of mine and, and one of the more sort of prominent high-performance managers in the world, really, in, in Craig Duncan. G'day, Dunk. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. How are you, Berger? Hey, Doc. How hey, are you? Good, mate. Good. Craig, look, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, we always sort of start, and, uh, you know, I think this is a really interesting part of the, of the show, is by just getting you to tell us your story. I mean, you've had a fascinating career, and, uh, you know, you've got the next three hours to tell us. No, the next few minutes to uh, to tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, Craig. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Thanks, Doc. Um, look, I, I mean, I started out, as most of us did, playing sport and, and playing all sports and really specialising in football, in, in soccer. And um, I thought that was going to be my career, but uh, I just wasn't good enough. Uh, it wasn't an injury that stopped me or anything like that. I just I just wasn't good enough. But I thought yeah, that's really the life I'd like to be involved in. So then I went and uh, studied what was human movement science back in those days, so sports science, and then did my postgraduate work in that field and did my doctorate in that, you know, in sports science and then studied psychology and, and also studied philosophy. So I, I did that from an academic perspective, but then was always involved with teams. And um, I started, you know, working in the, you know, professionally in, in Australia, um, worked with Sydney FC, Western Sydney Wanderers, um, and then worked with the Australian national team, as you both have done. And uh, I suppose over over the course of my career, I, I've worked with uh, six national federations now, I think, and, um, you know, worked across multiple sports. So I've been, been really fortunate um, to, you know, to work in this human performance field and uh, just keep expanding it. I also have an academic position at um, the Australian Catholic University that I, I main, yeah, maintain. So, yeah, so I've been very fortunate. I think you're underselling yourself there, Craig. <laughs> it um, certainly is. Give us, give us the last the last couple of years uh, has been a really interesting ride for you. Um, some of the some of the organisations that you've worked with. Um, yeah, give us a just a quick sort of snapshot since you've left full time sort of um, high performance area. Yeah, some of, well, some of the great I, I adventures think, you've been on. Yeah, I think Berger, it's, it has been really interesting. Like I, I left um, working full time, um, I suppose, in one club uh, back in um, 2013, 14, and then we started a consulting business, uh, performance intelligence agency. So then we were working across multiple teams and and organizations and sports around the world. Um, but then I had the major focus of uh, the Football Federation, the Socceroos and the Matildas and all that for the last uh, 2018 World Cup campaign. So after 2018, I, I left the national team of Australia. And that's, I, I had some really interesting experiences because I went and worked for the national team of Iran for the 2019 Asian Cup. And then uh, had experiences 
um, with uh, the United Arab Emirates in this last World Cup campaign. So for the last year, I've been focused on on that, working with them, and uh, they've got to the final stages. In actual fact, where they're they're going to play for us uh, against Australia in a in a playoff game. <clears throat> Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, how do you see that one going, mate? Just as an early, um, early tip. Well, it's an interesting one, mate, because I've I've left uh, working for them really now because the the coaching staff that brought me in uh, departed in January. In, interesting enough, I mean they they got them enough points to get them through, but it was just one of those those things that happened. And um, so uh, I'm unsure. Look, I. To be honest, I'd be surprised if Australia would not win that game uh, and then go in a, in against Peru. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Nice, mate. And there was a there was an incident uh, about ten years ago now that sort of changed your. You know, we, we've been mates for a while, and I noticed a big change in your perspective on life and um, on your career as well. Do you want to uh, talk us through that? Yeah, and I suppose that was a catalyst for me, you know, leaving leaving one club and working at it full time. And um, I suppose in 2013, early early 2013, I was in one of those situations where you know things weren't going right at the right at the club, and um, well, the team wasn't going that well, and I just felt a lot of pressure on us, and a, a lot of spotlight was on our department simply because. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to blame injuries and, and push that barrow when other things aren't going well. And I was under uh, significant pressure and um, my health was good. You know, I, I run every day and I, I'm active and, and that. And I, I was only 45 at the time. And um, I had I, I was in the in the gym and I was just lifting and uh, not really thinking too much about it. And then. Uh, basically I had a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which I'd never heard of before. Um, and as most people would know, listening to this, you know, you don't have the feeling in the arteries. So, I mean, I, I didn't know, uh, at the time what had happened, uh, except that I went for a run that afternoon and, and I just had enormous chest pain and pain down the, the left arm and, and in the jaw. And, I knew all the symptoms, but, you know, being silly enough, I thought this couldn't be happening to me. <laughs> and in actual fact, what it, what happened was for the next couple of days, I kept doing my own basic stress test and uh, I'd go for a run and then boom, after about five or six minutes, I'd, I'd basically collapse and I'd, I'd pick myself up and, and just walk it off. And I was just getting this intermittent pain. So basically what was happening over those few days, I had multiple heart attacks and um, <clears throat> it wasn't until uh, I remember clearly it was on the Sunday, oh no, Monday morning going to work and my, my wife said to me, hey, look, I respect you think you know what you're doing, but you know what, you, you got to go to the doctor. So I actually went to work that, that day and Virgil, you'd know this well, I, I, I did the, you know, the the two laps around with the, with the team, you know, <laughs> and, um, and I stopped it at one because I had enormous chest pain and I didn't want to tell anyone. And I thought, okay, we're just going for a stretch now, guys, just do what you want. And I'm thinking, holy hell. <laughs> and, huh. uh, 
I went to the walk myself down to the doctor that night, and um, yeah, three weeks. Uh, that was three weeks into hospital. Um, you know that I until I until I got out, and I'd had this spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Um, the doc would would have known what that was. I I never knew, um, and uh, I was very very lucky. I because I kept pushing it. I was very lucky that it wasn't a major artery. I think it was the left circumflex artery so it was a minor one and I when they had to repair it they repaired it with uh stenting um <clears throat> like the artery was really uh damaged severely so that was an enormous shock to me mate um I was at first I, I just thought how could you know I'm a fitness coach I can't have this <laughs> no one know this but after a while I I really was able to Look at look at my life um, and think. Okay, I I just don't really want to do this um, too much anymore. I think I was worrying about the small things in life rather than bigger things. Uh, the work life balance in our work um, is very poor, and often we bring a lot of that on ourselves. And so that's where I thought, okay, I'll go into an academic position. And uh, I took a academic position, but then, you know, it keeps drawing you back. And then before you know it, you're, you're consulting and then you're, you're doing things and then you're, you're, you're wanting to do more and more. But I think it stayed with me over those 10 years and hopefully now to keep reminding me of what can happen. And I'm very strong about that for all the high performance community because as a consultant, I think it's in a lot of ways it's quite easy because I go into – um, you see the guys that are in there and the girls that are working day to day and I see the stress on them and, and what's happening from multiple angles. And I hope I can be a calming influence saying, you know, you've got to get this balance in life. You, you've got to, got to take the time and, and injuries happen. Um, it's things happen and, um, yeah. And, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, yes, the job is important, but life is much more important. <clears throat> so Craig, what, what have you done on a, like a day-to-day basis to change, uh, you know, your, your life really? I mean, cause clearly when you have an incident like this, you know, you look back and say, well, is it, you know, is it family history? No. Is it, is it uh, lack of exercise? No. Is it, you know, poor diet? No. You know, so pre- presumably stress is sort of a, the biggest factor that, uh, that we, you can sort of pin it on. Um, and it's all very well to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to get so stressed, you know, but what sort of day-to-day things do you do to sort of, that you didn't do 10 years ago that uh, you feel sort of keeps things in balance a bit better? Well, well, Doc, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think the, the biggest thing was I, I actually started focusing and studying on philosophy and, and really looking at life a bit differently because I spent a, a night where I thought I wasn't going to make it through. Um, a person, I was in a, in a hospital and a, a, a person in the same ward as me died because I was in this intensive uh, care and I started getting enormous chest pain. And then I started thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not laying here worrying about injuries and how the team is going and where they are on the ladder. I'm worrying about, wow, I'm not going to, going to, be there for my kids. And so then I, I, I just kept focusing over these last 10 years is, okay, 
what can I control and what can't I control? I can't control a result. I can't control um, whether we uh, win or lose. I can't control whether an organization wants me to stay or not. I can only control the work that we do um, in as much as doing our very, very best. And what else happens is outside my control and to leave that. Now, that's very easy to say, but that's the, the mantra I have. So now when I watch games, I think now, you know, if I'm involved in games where they're high stakes games, you know, of course I still want to win. Um, but um, I, I, I keep focusing on the process um, and that we've done everything right rather than thinking, yeah, this outcome is is anything to do with with the work, with me thinking it is, if that makes sense. Um, so I... I really focus on journaling every day um, and I have this thing, um, I've written about it because I've, I've got a book I, I wrote and um, and part of that is this deathbed scorecard because I thought that night I was really on my deathbed and there was things that I was checking off thinking, okay, am I happy with that? Am I happy with that? Am I happy with that? And then I talk about, you know, for people to do this on a daily basis. What are the key things in your life that at the end of your life you're going to ask yourself, okay, I'm, I'm happy now to go? And um, so that's very important to me. I don't always get it right at, at all because I think a lot of us in this business are, are you know, really love, love to win and are very competitive, but that's the thing that seems to keep me grounded. <clears throat> yeah, look, we'll, we'll get back to high performance in a minute. Of, uh, Sorry, Berger, I just wanted to... to... You know, I mean, things like um, sleep and uh, and meditation and so on. Do you do you do much of that, or you know, what what else have you sort of uh, incorporated in your sort of day to day life? Yeah, I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, sleep is is uh, you know, I think sleep is the foundation of performance. And the more I've been in this. You know, we've always known that sleep was important, but I think, yeah, very, very much. I, I'm, I, I monitor myself now, I suppose, as much as, you know, we monitor athletes and, and a key part of that is sleep and really managing that and getting that right. Um, look, I, I had no real diet issues um, and I don't have family history, but I did significantly change my diet about five or six years ago simply because um, I just found that carbohydrates just didn't work well with me anymore. I was feeling tired and that. So I, you know, I have a very low carbohydrate diet and I, I actually, um, uh, have a very uh, small eating window as well. So I think that's been very good for me in respect to focus, um, and just how I live my life. But, uh, yeah, sleep's important, the journaling and yes, I've tried, and I'd continue to try meditation. I've never cracked it um, as far as, uh, you know, getting it really right, but just trying to take some time to be still and, and silent as much as I possibly can. Um, one other thing, Doc, that I do do is that I try and own, own the morning. Um, and in my lifestyle, I can do that. And what I mean by that is that I get my exercise and my morning routine done. So I set myself up for the day. Um, you know, before I have to leave or before I have to do anything. And so I just think that really benefits me. Yep, sounds good to me. I'm, you know, you won't get any argument about uh, 
sleep and uh, and low carb uh, eating from uh, from me. <laughs> Over to you, Berjo. Yeah, I think this is. I think it's a setup. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because uh, yeah, I know I know how much Brookie is into the low carb stuff, but no, I, I like that. I I kind of get. Um, I like the fact that you're not pushing it too hard, Greg. Also, because you know we, we've all listened to podcasts um, where somebody says you know at night they have white noise, blue light, um, cool temperature mattresses then wake up and do 20 minutes of yoga, 20 minutes of meditation, don't turn their phone on for the first hour and a half. Um, you know, not everybody's in that position to be able to to do all that. So I like the fact that you, um, uh, whether it works or not, who would know, that you don't espouse it too much and you don't, because um, I, I listen to your podcasts and I know you sort of advise that sort of thing um, without going over. I guess my question to you is, um, given what you've experienced in the industry, we, we possibly have some uh, young, uh, you know, aspiring practitioners listening. How would they get the balance right when it is a demanding industry? I'm sure there's a part of you that says, well, if you sign up to be a strength coach or a fitness coach or whatever, um, you can't sign up to work for a professional team and say, you know what, I don't like working weekends because it affects my balance. Um, <laughs> What's your advice to you know to to these these practitioners when they're going into this role? Yeah, that's a great question, Bojo. I mean, I I stress it enough. I think that the first step in in doing this and is is to even before you think about working in the performance industry is to design what lifestyle you want. Um, and what I mean by that is to to really sit back and look and go, okay, I want to live my life like like this. I don't need to tell you to, but there's a lot of things that go into that because um, you can't choose where you're going to be on weekends and all this sort of stuff. And and I don't know if sometimes young practitioners really understand that, um, just how taxing this can be. And look, the three of us have had a wonderful life because of high-performance sport. However, it comes with uh, things that are, that are, are really difficult. Uh, so you've got to sit back and go, okay, this is what I uh, what I want my lifestyle to to look like, um, and then you're going to be hands, uh, you know, you're going to be all in on it. And to have a good mentor, if you can possibly uh, get that, um, is is also very important just to to help you along the way. But it's just so important to sit back and 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 look at this. Um, and see what life you want. I, I even say it's, it's very important, it, the partner that you actually choose as well, because it's, it's going to not work really well if you're, you've got a partner that wants you home on, on Saturday or Good Friday or Easter Sunday and you're playing a game or that you're traveling and, and, and all this sort of thing. So those things are so, so, so important. Um, and it's much better if you get that sorted out even before you go into the business. I'll never forget I had one um, young graduate and he, he was very talented and he, um, he, he was doing an internship with us and um, he rung me up and said, oh, Craig, I don't think this is for me. I said, why is that? And he goes, well, I went to training um, and it was a, a, you know, a soccer team and uh, he said, I spent some of the session chasing balls when they were doing <laughs> shooting practice. <laughs> And I said, yeah, okay, all right, I get that. Um, but however, 
you know, I was just in, in Dubai and I've been in this business a long time. And you know what? I, I just spent half my time of that trip chasing balls and picking up balls and picking up gear. So, so I think having an understanding of what this business is and knowing that, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's, it's very important to have a, a good grounding um, uh, and, and to really think about what lifestyle you want first. Mm. He, he should try picking up balls when they're doing T20 centre-wicket practice for before a T20 game and the guys are hitting <laughs> it into the grandstands and the grandstands, half of them are locked and I'm the person getting the balls. And, uh, you know, that was probably my major contribution to the cricket team when I was there, I think, actually, trying to... I saved them a lot of money in finding all these balls, but uh, I know exactly what you mean. That, uh, that uh, chasing balls you do... Uh, if you think that's below you, then, yeah, you shouldn't be in the job. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I actually interviewed uh, and uh, last week, and I won't say for what position, but um, uh, yeah, and the person said, you know, I, I don't want to come in and um, and you know feel ice baths and things like that. Like that, that's not what I'm about. I'm all about the performance. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, okay, no problem. Next, next question. Um, next what about, uh, Yeah, what, what about? You've been pretty. Uh, when I uh, was over in the UK, and and people would often know you as the person who took on Raymond Bahian and you know, and 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 had a bit of a Twitter sort of battle with him. And we don't need to sort of cover that ground again. But um, you, you've been sort of outspoken about ego in a lot of your, um, you know, a lot of your social media and things like that, which is. Um, which is interesting because there's a balance between having an ego and then having a healthy ego and being able to manage that. And there's certainly you would have dealt with all kinds in this in this industry. Give us your thoughts on that and, and how you manage to, to handle that aspect of of our field. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I think. Um... <clears throat> Look, you and I are great mates, so um, and we've had a, a similar sort of uh, background how we've how we've done things, and um, yeah, and so yeah, in 2011, I did have a yeah, a big battle with Raymond uh, Vahayan. Um I've just always been brought up to, I suppose, to have an opinion, um, and I also think that. It's very important if bad things are being done and good people don't do anything about it, then that's a big problem. We're complicit in that. So um, the way he was and what happened um, in in Australia where he sort of came in and, um, you know, had a, a regime of his football conditioning, I, I was just questioning that. Um, and then that blew up. But that that's another matter. I, I still do stay um, strongly opinionated on on things. And as far as the ego goes, a lot of that I talk about to myself, you know, because the ego is the enemy of all of us. And um, uh, I have to be aware of when is my ego and my bias getting in the way. And I, and I think in this high performance field, it's so strong. Um, and uh, it's just so important that we keep that under check. Um, and Martin Boucher just uh, released a book and I had a little bit of involvement in it early on. He did a wonderful job, you know, about ego and all these stories about where ego has impacted uh, different 
different practitioners along the way and when we've seen ego um i i, I just think it's it as i've got longer into this this business it's all about you know managing the the relationships in the in the high performance department and then the relationships with coaches to get the best outcome for the players it, it, I, I go into a, a number of organizations where there's these battle lines drawn and it's like hang on guys i think we're all on the we're meant to be all on the same team but you know the sports med department's fighting the uh fitness department and then both are fighting the coaches and and it's like come on if we if we continue like this we're not going to get anywhere so it's very important that first we start with the the understanding that ego is the enemy for all of us um and and even if you don't think you've got an ego you have like um <laughs> it's funny i mean you know this story but i remember one time i was having a uh, i was at a having this discussion with someone that was was sort of having a go at me and um and he, and he and he sort of said uh and and he included you into it as well he said oh you and Virgo, you know you you're just about your brand and i said well, what are you talking what are you talking about i said just because we get out there and we're opinionated and we do things and and like the, what they were trying to say is is this was a problem where just because we might have an opinion and have gone on and and and, and done certain things that this seemed to be um, impacting this person. And so where he would be thinking, oh, that I had a problem with my ego, you can also see that there's a problem with the ego there with even thinking that. So um, I think we all have the issue. I think we're all going to manage it. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's a problem in, in the business. I think you must know where your lane stops. Uh, I think it's really important. I think... I've been, uh, I've had very good relationships with sports medicine departments simply because I'm not a medical doctor. So that's the expert, the medical doctor. I'm not a physiotherapist, so I want to hear their opinion. I can challenge that and ask the question, but I'm never going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that, that relationship because they're the expert in that field. I know what I'm good at. And that's my lane, and it's a very small lane. I see the problems happening where everyone thinks, you know, that they, they can make a decision on on medical things if they're a strength and conditioning coach or or the physio starts to think they really might have a, a comprehensive understanding of training load and monitoring, and a lot do, but a, a lot don't. So I think it's all understanding, okay, we're much better as a team than an individual. Let's work together and, and keep our ego in check. Let's have robust conversations in the departments. But ah, please, let, let's, at the end of the day, we're there to serve the players and to serve the coach and to serve the organization we're working with. That's it. Not to serve our own uh, insecurities and ego. Yeah, it's, a, it's some great points. Uh, I guess that leads on to... Um, high performance departments and you've seen a lot either being involved with them, setting them up, uh, being a consultant to them. What are the features of, and I know you'll say sort of communication and everybody putting their ego aside, but what, what are some of the other real key features of, um, of an effective high performance department? I think the, the, uh, the recruitment is so vital. 
that you you get that um, really done very very well, uh, and you've got to be careful with that. I think sometimes when I've come into high performance departments that are dysfunctional, I think you can spend some time trying to sort that dysfunction out because it might have been uh, a lot of the time it might have been just because there just wasn't wasn't coordination in that department. But there will be some times when people are not the right fit for an organization. And, um, you know, they, there's an old old saying about, you know, you hire, hire slow, but you fire fast. Um, and unfortunately, I think sometimes I've seen situations where, yeah, this is this is not going to work due to whether it's personality issues or, or whatever. Um, because I think if you have one disruptive part or portion in a high performance department, it can be can be quite negative. I always go with the thing of trying to keep everyone uh, involved and and trying to work best with that to give people the opportunity. Um, but sometimes um, it, it's it's just too much. So I think Bojo recruitment's really important. Um, yeah, and 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 just yeah, and you really want people to to be able to have those relationships across the board and positive relationships. <clears throat> what about um, uh, as a consultant into a club, how have you managed uh, coming from externally to where you don't sort of live and breathe it every day and it can obviously have some massive advantages for yourself um, as well as, you know, getting an objective lens on things where you're not influenced by a coach's mood and, you know, these pesky doc- doctors getting in the way. Um, <laughs> how, um, how have you handled that and, uh, and managed that side of things? Uh, that, yeah, it's, I think it's first about when you f- go into a place that you, you, you analyze the whole organization and, and to, to sit down and have discussions with everyone uh, that you can to find out as much information as possible. Like I've gone into places where coaches have brought me into, or, you know, uh, the management has brought me in as a consultant and I can see that the staff uh, are not happy about that. And that becomes a, uh, can be difficult. But I think once they get to know me and, and understand that I don't want their job, I'm there to actually help them uh, that it works quite well. But I think also having the understanding that I do not know it all. I'm not there every day. I want to. I want to hear what's going on, um, and for me to be uh, a help um, rather than it's you know Craig Duncan's way. It's 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 not about that. It's just about working with them. So I think it starts from that first step when you do your own analysis and and spend time with the people that are there every day uh, just to see what's going on and and where can I offer support. And do you think um, uh, in in terms of that medical sort of uh, performance, strength and conditioning, how is that? You've been, you've sort of navigated that really really well by, as you say, not challenging but not not um, overriding in any way, shape or form. What are the mistakes that people make in that in that area? I think that they think that they know more than the people. Like I, I mean, I was brought up 
Um, I've always was brought up well, like in respect to have great respect for uh, medical doctors. It was just part of my generation and how my parents saw. So I always have have maintained that. Um, and so I think uh, a medical doctor does all that study in that area that I'm going to respect that. And I and it's about how you frame a question. Um, if you're asking a uh, if you're asking a medical doctor uh, something, or you're it's not challenging, it's just framing it differently. And often I come from a, a perspective of curiosity because I just I just want to know. Um, I've been very fortunate. I think we're fortunate in most instances in this country to have very good medical doctors, and um, and so that's made it easy. Um, in saying that, I. I, uh, in, a, in a recent position that I had, I'd, I'd worked with a, uh, a doctor that I'd never, uh, I mean, I, I don't mind saying it publicly, probably the top one or two or three worst I've ever worked with in my life, not as a medical doctor, just as a practitioner. And even then, I tried to maintain the respect that this person was a uh, um, had a, a, a you know a medical background, but I could see from my experience that things just didn't like just procedures and governance just didn't add up, um, and just the behaviour of how uh, they were treating people, which was more nothing to do with the medical side of things, but just that that whole management. Um, so that that can be a problem. But I've been very fortunate in most instances of my career, um, and I think that's mainly. Um, when you're working with uh, uh, Australian medical professionals and even physiotherapists, I think that um, we're, we're, we are fortunate. Um, <clears throat> however, I, I, I just think some people do, yeah, it's all, mate, it's all about staying in the lane. I mean, yeah, uh, like it, it's, it's like a step, you know, like a physio, I've seen conflict between physios and the, the, the doctor. You know, because the maybe I, I I have this thinking that maybe maybe back in the day that physio wanted to be a doctor and they weren't able to be a doctor, but they think they know better than the doctor because they're there all the time and 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 they they might see it differently. But then again, I've I've been very fortunate to work with fantastic physiotherapists like you know like Les Gellis is just you know outstanding people that are just able to to manage everything so positively so i think it's about having respect for people's positions and people's background um and i think there is the challenging um but you can challenge people in a in a very positive positive way like you and i both know uh sports science people that are outstanding sports scientists uh technically but if you don't have the emotional intelligence to go along with your, you know, your uh, your basic intelligence, then it's not going to go too far. Uh, and I think for a number of years, sports science has sort of been on that tipping point of being um, going over the cliff and people sort of saying, OK, we're not really interested in that simply because of the communication of sports scientists. With I've had so many coaches go to me, look, I'm just not dealing with that. You know, I'm, I'm sick of dealing with that because I'm not getting from that. So I think it's about knowing that we're all a piece of the puzzle. You've got to communicate very well with the data as well. I mean, there's no point collecting all this data if you're not communicating and it's making a difference. 
that's the thing. Like, why collect it if it's not making a difference and you're not using it in your daily workflow? Then, then don't collect it. Um, so there's all those sort of things. So I, I think it gets back to very much understanding our role and our, our piece in the uh, that we've got to play in the whole puzzle. Craig, I'm, I'm curious about your recent experiences. Now you said you you went to Iran and and, and later UAE. I mean. I think probably a lot of Australians would be very fearful of, of taking on a job in, in somewhere like uh, Iran. Tell us a little bit about that, and, and uh, you know, would you recommend you know young practitioners to to go to uh, countries that are culturally quite different from from Australia and uh, and get experience there? Yeah, uh, Doc, they were they were fantastic experiences, and I do uh, I suggest if you do have the possibility to do that, to uh, very much to to take it up. Uh, it has helped me so much culturally, and it also, like at this stage of my career, you want to have the challenge and the challenge of uh, language barriers of, um, like it might seem crazy to us but a lot of these countries very that have you know around the world um have not used practices that we regularly use um so i think in every nation that i've worked in i've put in a monitoring system so it wasn't there before i came um i think iran was a wonderful experience i i was so impressed um just incredible football players, um, the passion of the fans. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I, I'll tell you a story. We, we, we were in the Asian Cup and they, were, uh, they hadn't got to pass the quarterfinals for, uh, for uh, 20 years or so. And it was in the round, a round of 16. And I always would go in. It was a Portuguese coach, Carlos Quiroz there. Um, so I came in with his team. So you have a small team of, of that. And then you have the supporting federation staff. And in the first minute, Oman got a penalty. It was actually, uh, Pim was the coach then, guys, so, of Oman. And um, yeah, so Oman got a penalty in the first minute. And I thought, oh, bugger, you know, it's around a 16. But that's, yeah, that's the first minute. We've got heaps of time and we've got so much talent. I didn't even think too much about it. Anyway, the keeper saved it. And I looked to my right and I thought, oh, no, that's great. And I looked to my right and there was three Iranian staff, like the maybe the team manager, security and the gear steward, with tears rolling down their face. Absolutely distraught and then uh, excited that the keeper had saved the penalty. <laughs> and then it sort of dawned on me and then I sort of looked behind me and um, you see the Iranian fans and it's similar. And then... So to understand, and then they sort of told me, like, there's 80 million people in Iran, and when the national team plays, you know, 50, 60 million people are tuned into the TV. It's such a major thing for them. So I think that was uh, just just so interesting to me. Um, and also to understand, like, a country like a, a Moran, that we can sit back here and go, oh, it seems like a dangerous place, the people and all that sort of stuff. They're, look, we're so much more similar than we are different. And they're just good people trying to live their life and, you know, politics sort of sort of happened. So that was incredible. Um, and, oh, incredible players, incredibly physically. I think that, that was also an interesting thing that they – they're like the Australians of yesteryear, you know, that they all could play multiple sports. They grow up doing wrestling and 
and all very good athletes across the board and physically very, very strong. Um, so they were so impressive. UAE is different altogether. Um, but I think just, yeah, just, just understanding that, you know, with the UAE, their sleeping cycle, we talk about sleep that, uh, and, and managing around the cultural differences, uh, of, of these countries. So the UAE players tend to go to sleep about three or four o'clock in the morning. Hmm. And so we're an Australian team where we're used to them, you know, with the monitoring and all that sort of stuff, they're up at 7.30. You might have a 7.30 to 8.30 window. Um, breakfast is at this time and lunch and everything's audibly. These guys were doing the monitoring at, uh, at midday, 12 o'clock, just before the first meal of the day is at um, uh, 1 p.m. And when you first come into those, you can't come into these, these different nationalities and different cultures with our lens that it's our way or the highway because it's a bigger issue than that. There's, a, there's just this cultural differences. Also, like even with prayer, how prayer impacts you know, when they're praying uh, multiple times during the day, we have to manage training around prayer um, and, and all that. And I, I think it's very good for was just to just to uh, adjust and to see all these different different things. And I think if you can work in these multiple uh, differences, then then only makes you a better practitioner. I also love the fact that I, I've gone in and they haven't ever done monitoring before. And then you've got players, you know, putting their data in on a daily basis and getting interested in all their the information. And I, I, I find that um, uh, enjoyable. <clears throat> and you 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 uh, are known for your monitoring sort of prowess and, and that's your experience um, in the field. Um, when do you know uh, what data combination uh, has to happen before you pull the trigger on somebody and say, no, the risk is too high here? Um, I know that's sort of how long's a piece of string because I'm asking you without any context or, you know, and most people would say, well, it depends, which might be the right answer. But I know I'll get a little bit more detail from from you than most. Um, yeah, yeah what, using your experience, how do you know when to pull the trigger? Look, I th I think there's yeah multiple sort of sets of data that you're you're working with, and I I always you know want to want to look at the train. You know, you you keep track. I always say don't take your days eyes off the data on on. Uh, you need to look at it on a very good daily basis. And that's the sets of data from the training data, the game data, um, you know, the, the morning monitoring, you know, subjective and objective data. And then you also got the medical team, what they are seeing. So you're sort of looking at, and then you've got the player and then you've got the coach's eye. Uh, so I think these, all these things come in, come into play uh, that are very important. But when, what, I think is important when you start seeing things move away from normal um, and you start to see normal and what I mean by that, by that individual players normal. So I think we, we work in team sports, but team sports are played by individuals and individual athletes. So we might have the team norms, but then you've got these set norms for the individual player that we need to keep an eye on. 
Um, I think it's to, to put, I don't think Berger these days I would pull the trigger. Um, I think it's more giving, I always talk about that the, the data um, drives uh, intelligence, which drives that information to the, to the coach. Um, and then I think when you've got so much good uh, information, it becomes very clear when someone needs to be modified in training or managed or, you know, from these multiple sources. So I think from the old days where we would have gone, okay, you know, Darren Burgess is out because his sleep was six hours and, um, you know, this, uh, his HRV is, is, is dropping and all this sort of stuff. He's not training. I don't think it's as simple as that conversation. I think that it's a bit, uh, a, a bit more involved. And then having that conversation with the player, I, I find now it just sort of, when you've set it up well, and you've got communication, very good communication across the across the organisation because you've educated the coaches in this as well. That um, it's quite seamless. So, but if you if you want to press me on a question, I think when you start seeing uh, the intensity in their training uh, decrease compared to what is normal for certain training sessions. And then you see disruptions in their monitoring data as well. Then you can start to see, and, and then if you look at their game data, if that starts to deteriorate, then you can start to see. And then you see with the medical team, are they, you know, what do they seem like on the bed? You know, is, is there some issues? I think then you can make a, a pretty clear cut decision. Craig, if, if, You've been involved in uh, in football and soccer in, in Australia for for a long time. Um, obviously, you know we're going through a, a bit of a, uh, a challenging time at the moment in, in, at the uh, at the top level, uh, especially with our, our men's team. Uh, not so much the women who are going okay, but I mean, why do you think that uh, that is the case? I mean, uh, you know, we obviously had the the golden generation of you know the two thousand and six and maybe the two thousand and ten World Cup sort of teams with you know your your Vadukas and your Kules and Kales and so on, and yet now we don't seem to have you know players playing at the elite level you know in in the major leagues and and obviously as a national team we're we're struggling a bit. I mean, you know. Why, why do you think that is? And, and if, you know, if I gave you, you know, if I said to you, you're now in charge of uh, football in Australia, you know, what would you do to, uh, to try and restore those, uh, those halcyon days? Look, I, I think um, there was some mistakes made with not understanding where Australia, and this is when we talk about culture, um, uh, was that. Um, it's interesting because I've, I mean, and I know you guys work closely with the, the Dutch and um, I, I think Han Berger was the technical director when you were there, Berger. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, I've worked um, extensively with Dutch staff uh, with Bert van Marwijk, which has been a joy. Um, the perception of Australians were Oz that we were wonderful athletes that that was, we were so uh, physically strong uh, that we are these wonderful athletes. Now, I think what happened was that was true. Um, and you look at those golden generations, that these guys were athletically uh, very good. Um, then it seemed to happen that, okay, we're technically and tactically not good enough. Yeah, okay, that could be true. So work on that. But why would you take away one of our strengths? 
And then you combine that with what's happened culturally in this country <clears throat> where kids are not as physically active as they once were. Um, they're uh, our declining health status of our younger generations. I think that's led in to what we have now. I think the major issue with our, uh, our teams now is that physically we don't have the advantage that we once had uh, resilience wise and, and that mentality, uh, is not there that people think, okay, it's the Australian way. No, I'm sorry. It's not. Um, and like I said before, the Iran team was like what I imagined, you know, like that's what Australia used to, used to be like. I was seeing when I was involved with the Federation, I was seeing the, you know, the 17s, the under 17s kids and, and, you know, now they're coming right through and the under, under 20, and I'm like, okay, they're just physically not good enough. And I know I've got that bias because that's our area, but it's absolutely a major problem because all these kids do is football, football, football. The parents think that's what they've got to do, but we're not a monosport country. Okay, we have multiple sports. You can't tell me that during the younger years playing multiple sports is not going to benefit your football. It absolutely is because we've got people that can't, um, yeah, just, you can't, I mean, you guys have worked at the highest level and absolutely the highest level. And if you go to Liverpool and Arsenal and you will tell me, like, it's, a, it's taken for granted that these are, they're, they're wonderful athletes. It's, 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 and, and technically and tactically, they're better. So we, we need to get back to, we really need to get back to that, that we've got wonderful athletes. And I'm not saying, like, athlete became a dirty word in Australian football. Oh, they're just athletes. Well, I think that's a positive because you've got to move. It's not futsal. You know, we are moving and we've got, we have to move around this uh, a significant amount of this pitch. Um, and then the better athlete you are, the, the higher level you are, cognitively you're going to be better. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that was a big mistake that was made um, around just the, the thought process that, okay, we've got this athletic thing in the bag where, where we're great athletes. We just need to work on the technique and, and tactics. And now what we have is, well, we're never going to be technically and tactically that good, as good um probably and um and now we're not good athletes mm. so what do we have <laughs> you know yeah what are your thoughts on that Berjo? yeah unsurprisingly I, I i guess i agree um i think the the point that craig made about um it's it's guaranteed overseas that they're good athletes um what we have in say holland um, Germany, any of those countries is football is the number one, soccer is the number one sport. So five out of six kids choose to play soccer. So of course you're going to get the pick of the athletic genes and then the development, the skill development can take priority because the athletic ability is already there. Um, and of course it can be enhanced and developed. Um, but the athletic potential is already there. That's not the case here in Australia. We don't get the um, the best athletes don't necessarily play football. So we have to maintain that and develop that as well as the technical ability. There's just, as Craig said, there's no point 
just telling kids to play futsal so that their skills are outstanding, yet um, their athletic ability, particularly in the um, qualification groups that we are now in, which is Asia, uh, incredibly athletic, incredibly demanding conditions, um, it just doesn't work and it hasn't worked and we've seen it throughout um, the last probably seven or eight years, to be honest, it's been coming. And there's multiple reasons for it. Ours is just, this, the, what we're discussing here is just one of the reasons for it. Um, we just can't keep up with the, with the Asian teams. Um, we just can't compete physically. And now, sadly, technically, uh, we can't compete. So we've robbed Peter to pay Paul and Paul isn't even working. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite sad to watch and ho- hopefully we get through and, and we get to experience another World Cup as a nation. But I, I fear for it and, and I certainly fear for what, what's coming after this particular, um, this particular reign or this particular regime or, or qualification period. Yeah, it's tough, yeah, tough times. I, I think you make a yeah, you make a great point, Berger. I mean, yeah, look how we've got, you know, the sport you're involved in now. You know, I mean, the uh, kids that are brought up in in the southern states, their their priority or their dream is not to often play soccer for Australia. It's to play for um. You know, play for the Adelaide Crows, or you know, well, play for. Don't know about Adelaide, the, but uh, maybe Melbourne. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Craig, look, we we're running out of time, unfortunately. It's, you know, I'd love to to chat forever. Tell us a little bit about your book, and then we'll uh, we'll better let you go. Oh yeah, I mean, the book was. Uh, I I have this type of uh, concept called self science. And um, and the book is self science, uh, a study of you by you. Um, it's but it is it just gets back down to uh, what there's there's many ways to exercise, there's many ways to eat, there's many ways to to sleep, and there's there's different routines. But you've got to come back and and look at thinking, okay, what's going to work for me? Now, like you, Doc, I I eat very low carbohydrate. I follow that regime. I I have. Uh, I, I pretty much stick to one meal a day and a very small eating window. That works for Craig Duncan, okay, because I have that sort of personality. It, it absolutely works easily for me. I don't, I don't think uh, low-carb is difficult at all, and, and I've been doing that for probably five years now. However, I understand that's not for everyone. Okay, and so I'm not pushing that barrow for every person. I'm going, okay, these are the options that you you can have. There's many, many things in life that you can do, but choose what's going to work for you best. Like if you you like to run, go and run. If you like to walk, go and walk. If you like to cycle. So self-science is about really instead of letting outsourcing your health and outsourcing your lifestyle to others, have some involvement in it. Have involvement when you go to the doctor, not to 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 just ask the questions, to be curious, because at the end of the day, it's your your life. When you go to the fitness instructor or when you go to the dietitian, question these things because there is so much information that is available. Um, and I also talk about you know basically how to understand some of the information and what's good information and not you know what's not good information. But yeah, it's very much about taking ownership of of your health your lifestyle and all that sort of uh concept well sounds good what's the name of it again tell us the name of the book 
Self Science, A Study of You by You. Tim Cahill wrote the foreword, actually. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Which oh, is nice. good. There that you go. Work with Tim. So That's great. That Fantastic. Yeah. Craig, thank you yeah. for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. As I said, I'd love to love to talk for more. Maybe we'll get you on uh, again at some stage. But uh, we really appreciate your time. It's been a really fascinating insight into uh, into your world and, and the lessons you've learnt and the experiences you've had. And uh, we really appreciate your time. So thanks, mate. Uh, thank you so much, Doc. Thanks, Bojo. Cheers, Craig. Good to chat, mate.